Joe of the Chalet School, Chapter 13, The Nativity Play The remainder of the term simply flew. Exam week followed the inauguration of the Hobbies Club, and various people wished on different days that they had worked a little harder during the term. Joe Bettany groaned over every one of the math papers. That was a disgusting fraction, she proclaimed to all and sundry after the arithmetic paper. Margia, who was standing near, opened her eyes widely. Why, Joey, it was easy. They compared what they had gotten as their answers, and then Joey was upset because she thought she had gotten the wrong one. What on earth have I done? Goodness knows. Joe resigned herself to her fate. I never could do maths, and I never shall. But if the paper was, as Miss Maynard characterized it, disgraceful, her English, French, and German were all excellent, and so were her history and literature, in all of which Margia was only average. Frida came out strongly in geography, and of the seniors, Bernhilda headed the mathematics lists, with Grisel a good second while Gisla and Juliet divided the language honors between them, and Wanda proved to be an easy first in drawing. The last afternoon was given up to a concert, which was ended by the people in the valley round about, Herr Ansrill, and one or two of his friends, Runsparts, and a few parents who managed to get up the snowy paths to Tiern Valley. Needless to state, every one was wild with excitement at the prospect. Meta Jensen took place at twelve. By half-past one, all the girls were attired in white frocks. They had spent the morning in decorating the big schoolroom with branches of evergreens, a couple of screens cut of, off the upper end of the room, and the other part was filled with chairs and forms for the visitors, who began to arrive shortly after two. By half-past, the room was full, and then Miss Bettany came forward and announced for the first time, A madrigal, how fair the sun! The screens were drawn aside, showing the rows of white-frocked girls, with Mr. Denny in front of them to conduct. Plato might be a freak, as Joey declared, but he certainly knew how to teach singing, and the harmony of the fresh voices that filled the room was something to be proud of. Like all Austrians, the Tarnsey people are musical, and they listened in breathless silence, which told how they enjoyed it. It was followed by the girl's own favorite, my bonnie lass, she smitheth, and then they sang one of Martini's canons. Herr Ansel sat, looking unusually pleased. Herr Gott, he observed to Miss Bettany, but he has made something of them, this young man. The head nodded. They sing well. Excellently well. I must greet him, Herr Denny. The singing was followed by a piano solo by Margia, who was some day to surprise the whole world with her music. Gisela gave a charming rendition on her violin, and Grisel and Frida played a duet. The strict attention to time, and very little to anything else, and then they all sang again, one of the folk songs this time, Come All Ye 
valiant Christian men. After this, there was an interval during which Amy Stevenson, Simone, and Marie distributed papers among the audience, on which were written words of the German carol, Silent Night, and also of the Latin hymn, Adeste Fidelis. Then Miss Bettany came forward once more and explained, "'We are going to give you a little nativity play,' she said. "'It is in English and is called The Youngest Shepherd.' As you all know, it was the shepherds abiding in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night, that the angel of the nativity told the good news of Christ's birth. Our little play is based on the story, and we should like you, when we come to them, to join us in Christmas songs written on the sheets given you. Then she vanished, and the screens were drawn to show an ordinary room with modern children in it. It was Christmas Eve, and the children were talking, quarreling, till a carol outside made them stop. Such a lovely carol! Good Christian men rejoice, sung as only Mr. Denny's pupils could sing. The four children hushed their wrangling then, and spoke instead of the next day, and what it brought to the world. Then the curtains parted, and the youngest shepherd stood before them. He told them of the angel song, and explained that, as he was the youngest of all the shepherds, he had had to stay behind to look after the sheep. But God had sent an angel down to guard them, so that he, too, might go and worship at the manger. And he invited the children to go with him. They all sprang to their feet, ready to go. Then they remembered that all who had gone to worship the baby king had taken him a gift. So they caught up their own favorite possessions to give. The young shepherd drew aside the curtains and sang, See, listen. A throng of angels were there, and they were singing the English carol in the fields with their flocks abiding. The children stood listening till the lights dimmed and the song died away into the pealing of Christmas bells, and the screens were swiftly drawn across the stage. The next scene was out of doors. The children came in weary with the youngest shepherd. It was a long way, and they were so tired. A poor man came by them and asked where they were going. They told him and asked him to come with them, but he said the kings never gave audience to the poor and needy such as he. For reply, they told him that this was the king of the poor needy. He laughed at them. And the youngest shepherd, as a final answer, sang the old cherry tree carol. They had all known that Joey could sing, but no one had quite realized that the beauty of her voice before. It was not a very strong voice, but each note was round and pure, with the bell-like quality to be found in some boy choristers. She was utterly unselfconscious and had, in fact, forgotten everything but the fact that she must give this man to realize that the king wanted him too. There was a low murmur as the last clear tone died away, but the audience were too deeply interested in the story to applaud. Then the man agreed to come, but just as they were about to move on, a great lady clad in whispering silks with many jewels about her met them and asked their destination. They told her that they were going to see the king, and she sneered at their manner of going. 
King, she told them, could only be visited in great pomp. They begged her to come and see. And at first she refused. Then the smallest child held out her hand and said, Do come, oh, do come. And she gave way and came. There was a little silence at that, and then suddenly the lovely chorus sang out. There came three kings, and the magi appeared, bearing gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Caspar, Malchior, and Balthazar paused in their following of the star to rest and discuss the meaning of their gifts. Then they, too, went forward, and the scene and the screens were drawn once more. During the three minutes' interval there came another carol, when the crimson sun had set, with its wonderful chorus of Gloria and Excelsis Deo. When it was finished, the stage was revealed once more, the door of the stable, an archangel stood there, and the white lily of peace in his hand. Music stole out into the room, and, as one of the audience rose, and the old German carol, Silent Night, was sung with full throats, when it was over, they were all sitting once more, and the angel chorus sang again the bird carol this time. How weary they were, and how eager! At the door they paused. Would the king be pleased to see them? Yes, surely he would. He had sent the angel to tell them. So they passed in, and the chorus sang the first Noel. Next came the wise men, and they paused in the wonderment before the humble place. This was no king's abode, but the star had stopped, so it must be right, and they too passed in. Finally came the youngest shepherd and his little group, to the singing of the children's carol, Come to the manger in Bethlehem. The children pressed forward into the stable. The men and the lady followed more slowly. Last came the youngest shepherd. He had no gift but himself to offer. He was scarcely even a shepherd, just a servant to help the others. But at last he, too, went slowly in, and the screens were drawn back once more across the stage. The well-known tune Adeste Fidelis sounded, and everyone sang it, so that it rang out as even Silent Night had not done. Then the screens were taken away for the last time, and the interior of the stable was shown. An old wooden trough filled with hay stood at the back. Before it seated the Madonna, Wanda van Ekeru, holding in her arm a bundle to represent the Holy Child. Behind her stood Luigi de Ferrara as Joseph, and at either side stood an archangel with bowed head. Child angels clustered round them, and kneeling at the Madonna's feet, her baby face full of awe and reverence, was a tiny cherub, the robin. To the right and at the back stood the welcoming archangel with his lilies. There was a little silence, and then once more music swelled out, and once more Joey's silvery tones stole forth, though Joey herself was behind the screen. The carol chosen for this was the Britain carol, Sleep, Holy Babe. The poignant sweetness of the young voice struck home, and even to those who could not understand what was said, somehow the scene brought lumps into the throats of the audience. 
Then one by one the worshippers stole in. The shepherds came first, offering their crooks, then the wise men with their symbolic gifts, and then the children eagerly laying their treasured possessions before the holy child and his mother. The poor man had only his old blunt knife, but it was offered and accepted, and the lady tore off all her jewels and piled them at the Madonna's feet. Then the youngest shepherd came. He had nothing but himself to give. Humbly he knelt, and a sudden strain of music swelled out as the Madonna rose, queenly, to her feet, and held out to him a silver crook. His was the richest gift of all, for he had brought other worshippers. Then came the final carol, Brightest and best are the sons of the morning. As it ended, the screens were brought forward, and the lights in the room were turned up. Miss Bettany stood forward. Thank you, she said in her sweet voice, for your appreciation of our little play. We wish you all a very happy Christmas. A storm of good wishes promptly broke on all sides, and the Trilonzees, all quick to answer emotion, and all were especially sensitive at that moment. The girl's performance, simple as it was, appealed to a people accustomed to giving and witnessing mystery plays, and for many a day the youngest shepherd gave the lake people a topic for conversation. As for the girls, it took them some time to come down to earth. When they did, there was much chatter about Christmas plans. They were all going home early to the next morning. Miss Bettany, Joey, and Robin would be the only ones left, and they would be leaving the chalet on the afternoon. The school was to be closed, and Marie and Egan, with Zita and Rufus, were going home for Christmas. Joe had begged hard to take Rufus to Innsbruck with her, Bernhilda having assured her that he would be welcomed. But Madge was firm and would not hear of it. Joe, therefore, had to content herself by giving the faithful Egan reams of advice about him. All the same, I know he'll miss me. The darling, she mourned to Grizel. Rubbish, retorted Grizel. He'll be all right. Oh, Joey, she went on. I do wish you were coming with me tomorrow. I hate the idea of being with only Mr. Stevens all the time. Mr. Stevens, father of Mergia, and Amy, was going to London to see the editor of the great daily paper to which he was foreign correspondent, and had offered to take Grizel so far. Her own father would meet her there and take her to Cornwall. Mr. Stevens is awfully nice, said Joe, in answer to her friend's last remark. And anyway, you're going to have weeks more than the rest of us, so I don't see why you're grumbling. I'm not grumbling, but, well, I'd like you and Miss Bettany to, replied, replied Grizel. I did want to be with you for Christmas. Joe looked at her curiously. You'll have Easter with us. I know, but Christmas is such a homey time. Tisn't much of a home at home. Joey was silenced. She knew that Grizel's stepmother had made home an anything but happy for her, just as she knew that Grizel loved her life at school. Finally, we'll miss you, she jerked out. Buck up, old thing. And with that, Grizel had to be satisfied.
Chapter 14. The Christmas Holidays Begin. Isn't it quiet? said Joey suddenly. It was one o'clock on the following afternoon, and she and her sister and the robin were finishing a very picnicky meal before finally closing the chalet and making the journey on foot to the Sparts, where the midday train from Salzburg would carry them off to Innsbruck and the Manches, flat in the Mary Halfer Strauss at the other side of the inn. Everyone had been up early, and the last of the girls had gone shortly after ten o'clock. Since then Miss Bettany and the two children had been busy packing their clothes in the light wicker baskets which Egan and Marie would help to carry down the snow-covered footpath to the station at Sparts. It would be easy walking, for the snow was frozen till it was like a rock, and the big nail-studded climbing boots they all wore would give them a grip on the slippery surface. "'Don't you think it's deathly quiet now everyone else has gone?' asked Joey. "'Yes, very quiet,' agreed her sister. "'If you two have finished, we may as well clear these things away so that Marie can clear up. "'We've a very fair walk before us. "'It is dark by four, so want to get off as quickly as possible. "'Hurry, children.' "'They hurried. "'One usually did when Miss Bettany spoke in that tone. "'Marie was busy washing up the few crocks she and Egan had used, "'and Joey sped to the Spiesel to hold up "'and put away the blue and white check tablecloth and help Robin to push the chairs into their places, Egan came to a while where they were busy and carefully raked out the remains of the fire left in the big porcelain stove. Like most of the houses along the Tarnsey, the chalet was built of wood, so the precaution was a necessary one. Just as he finished, Madge called them to get ready for their walk and the short railway journey and saw to their wrapping up herself. "'It's freezing outside, and we have a long walk,' Madge said. "'Run downstairs now, you two, and I'll come in a few minutes.' They clattered off, and ten minutes later Miss Bettany was locking the door, while Maria and Egan were already trudging ahead, each carrying two of the baskets, while a much smaller one remained for Joey. "'At last!' exclaimed the young lady, as her sister dropped the key into her pocket. Now we're really off. Oh, Madge, won't it be jolly to see the shops all decorated for Christmas? We've got nearly all our presents to get. Won't it be fun shopping? Splendid, replied Madge. But we don't want to live in the town always, do we, Joey? Oh, no, I love the Tarnsey in the mountains, but it's jolly to have a change. What do you think, Robin? and Robin lifted a rosy face to the delicate one and bent down to hers. "'It will be jolly,' she said emphatically. Madge laughed. "'So it will. I expect we shall have a splendid Christmas.' "'Will the Christ child put bonbons in our shoes?' asked Robin eagerly. "'Yes, if he thinks you've been good.' "'And then there'll be the Christmas tree,' added Joey. "'Frida says,' They're going to have an extra nice one, cause we're going to be there. Her brother's coming, too, from Bonn. We shall go to church, said Robin, chiming in, 
and see the manger and the little Lord Jesus and his mother. There's tobogganing, too, and skating, went on Joey, waving cheerfully to the hostess of the gassers at the, the sea spits, which they were passing. Come on, Robin, this way now. And she led off to the right, through the tall black pines, to the narrow winding pathways that ran along the banks, that was usually a very turbulent little stream. Now winter held it in its iron grasp, and there was silence where, before, there had been the music of tossing water. Icicles hung on the boulders in its bed, and frigid the elder boughs that overhung it, and black pathways of ice was all that showed its usual course. "'Isn't it still?' said Joey, in half-awed tones. "'Even the sawmill has stopped.' "'Of course,' said Madge. "'It can't go on when the stream is frozen.' "'I forgot that.' Joey gave a little giggle. "'Down, down they went. "'The voices of Marie and Egan floated up to them clearly on the frosty air, "'and occasionally there was a sharp crack, "'as a rotten bough snapped in the wood under its weight of snow. "'But except for these sounds there was silence, a silence that could be felt.' Even excitable Joey stopped talking before long, and they went on without speaking. When they had gone a third of the way, Miss Bettany stopped and picked up the robin, who was beginning to lag behind. "'Why not take her on your back?' suggested Joey. "'I can give her a boost up, and then you'll be able to see your way better.' "'That's a good idea,' agreed Madge. "'Climb up on the log, Robinette, and Joey will help you.' "'That's it. Put your arm round my neck. "'But don't strangle me, please.' "'Come along, then, Joey.' "'They set off once more, and this time got on faster. "'The robin was a light weight, and Madge, though slightly built, was strong. "'Joey stepped out manfully, and they made good time down the mountainside. "'Miss Bettany was beginning to feel anxious about Marie and Egan. "'They meant to return that night. She knew.' and it was growing dusk already under the pines. Joey, she said presently, if I send Marie and Egan back as soon as we reach the Sparks, do you think you and I can manage the Japanese baskets between us? The robin could carry your little one, I think. Oh, rather, said Joey enthusiastically, it isn't far to the station. I don't like the idea of those two having to go back up there in the dark. It's cloudy as it is. I'm afraid we shall have more snow. I'll carry the robin to the bottom, and then she'll be quite all right. We can take the baskets, and I'll send these two straight back up the path. Good scheme, agreed Joey. But I say, Madge, if you get tired, robin can carry the basket now, and we can give her a queen's chair. Perhaps that would be better, said Madge thoughtfully. She's very light, but the basket won't be. We'll stop now and do as you suggest, Joey. But I can walk, declared Robin, as she wriggled down to the ground. No, Robin, you will be so tired, replied Madge tenderly. See, I'm going to tie the little basket to your belt, and then you can sit on the handles, and it will rest on your knees, so that you can hold on to it safely. The Robin was always obedient. She sat down on their linked hands, 
and settled the basket on her knees, and then put an arm around each neck. "'Now I am ready,' she said cheerfully. They hurried on, and another twenty minutes saw them within sight of the Sparts, where already the lights twinkled out merrily. Marie and Egan were waiting for them. "'Marie,' said Miss Betney, as she and Joe set their bundle down, "'I am afraid it is going to snow before long, so I want you and Egan to give us the baskets and go straight back to the Brussau at once. We can easily manage as far as the station.' Marie would have argued the matter, but her young mistress gave her no chance. She took the two largest baskets herself, and said firmly, "'Joe, take the other baskets.' They all said good-bye, and Marie curtsied while Egan saluted, and both wished the trio a happy Christmas, before they turned and set off on their long walk home. "'Oh, Madge, there's Herr Ensorl.' Herr Ensorl, a shaggy-looking monster in his old fur coat, came hurrying across the road. "'Guten Tag, Fräulein,' he said to Madge, relieving her of her load. "'But where, then, do you go?' "'We are going to Innsbruck for the Christmas holidays,' explained Madge in his own language. "'Sie gut, he said. "'I will myself bring you to the Baunhof. "'Give me one of those basket-cases.' Fräulein Joey, please. Yes, I can take it. I will see you off, as you say in England. Madge was really very thankful for his escort. She was beginning to feel tired, and the baskets were heavy after their long trudge through the snow. She took the other one from Joey, who was beginning to look all eyes, an invariably sign of weariness with her, and they all meekly followed in the wake of Herr Ansrell, who strawed along shouting greetings, so it seemed to most of the people they met. At length they reached the station, while Madge went to get the tickets, and somewhat eccentric music-master took the two little girls into the restaurant and ordered hot milky coffee for them, with new rolls. "'And be sure they are new,' he added to the indignant attendant, who tossed her head, but nevertheless produced his coffee and delicious crusty rolls to break into. When Madge appeared, he insisted that she should have the same. "'There is sufficient time before the train comes,' he said. "'Yes, eat. Here is a sugar.' By the time they had finished their meal, the signals were down, and two minutes later the train swept into the station and Herr Ernstrel was bundling them into a compartment and wishing them a Merry Christmas, beaming widely all the time. "'Isn't he decent?' said Joey amazedly, as they steamed out of the station, for Herr Ernstrel was considerably more feared than loved at the chalet school. "'I'm going to send him a Christmas card.' Madge settled Robin comfortably in her arms, and before they had reached the town of Schwartz, she was far away in dreamland. Joey turned her attention to the flying landscape. The train had one more stop before they reached Innsbruck at the hall. Then presently came lights, and five minutes later they were on the platform of Innsbruck station, with Frau Mensch taking a very sleepy robin from Madge's arms, and Frida and Bernhilda kissing an ungrateful Joe on both cheeks and welcoming them all very warmly. 
This, then, is all the luggage, queried Frau Mensch. We have a droskek ready, and Gottfried will carry the package Fräulein permits me to present my son to you. She waved forward a tall, fair young man, who bowed with his heels well together, but said nothing. As he took the basket, Joey reflected that he seemed to be as shy as his two pretty sisters, who evidently thought him one of the most wonderful beings in the world. Frida walked beside him, looking at him almost reverently. Joey wondered what Dick would have said if she had ever looked at him like that. Bernhilda came round to her side, slipping an arm through hers. "'It is so nice to have you with us, Joey,' she said. "'We have looked forward to it for a long time. Gisela and Marie wished to come with us to meet you, but they live very far away, and there was no one to come with them. So Frau Marini refused permission.' By this time they had reached the Droskek. Joey sat silent as they were whirled down the brightly lit Landhaus Strauss and into the wide Marie Theresian Strauss, with its big modern shops all lit up and its wide pavements full of merry jostling crowds through the much narrower Frederick Horskog Strauss, where the shops are built under the arcades across the fine bridge and so to the quietest suburb on the left bank of the inn. They turned to the left from the bridge, and presently drew up before one of the tall, narrow houses overlooking the river. Gottfried jumped down and helped out his mother and the girls, before he hurried to the open door to disclose a narrow, windy, a narrow winding staircase of wood. "'We are on the third floor,' said Frau Minch. "'It seems a long way when one is tired.' but the air up there is always fresh, and it is comfortable flat with plenty of rooms. Come, Fräulein Bettany, I am sure you are weary and will be glad to rest, and this Vulgan should, should be in bed. Are you waking up, my Liebling? For the robin had opened wide brown eyes to gaze into the kind face above her. They went upstairs, leaving Gottfried to wrestle with the cabmen and the baskets. Frau Minch stopped before a door on the third floor and unlocked it. Enter, she said, and be very welcome. She had set the robin down to find her key, and now she stretched out her hand and drew Madge inside, kissing her heartily before she did the same to Joey. <clears throat> These little birds are very weary, she said in her soft voice, which made the guttural German sound musical. We will have supper, and then they shall go to bed. You will like to see your room. It was a typical Troiline room in which they stood, with walls of floor polished pine wood. There was a couple of mats on the floor, and in one corner was a huge wooden bed, with its big puffy bedding and pillows in pillowcases edged with exquisite handmade lace. Two tiny wooden washstands stood side by side, with usual baby bowls and pitchers on them, but over the towel horse hung towels of the finest hand-woven linen. A tall wardrobe, a chest of drawers with mirrors over them, 
and three chairs made up most of the furniture. At the foot of the bed stood the little cot, and over its heading hung a beautiful copy of Guido's Blue Madonna. The room was warm, but not stuffy, and the white sheets with pillowcases made Joey long for bed at once. A tap on the door ushered in a rosy, smiling girl wearing a full white blouse, short blue skirt, and a wonderfully embroidered apron. She was carrying a huge jug of hot water, which she set down by the wet, by the washstands, beaming all the time. Gutlib is a good girl," said Frau Minch, when Gertlieb had gone. Now we will leave you to perform the toilet as soon as Gutlieb has carried in your baskets, and Frida will come to bring you a little refreshment in ten minutes' time. At this moment, the smiling Gertlieb reappeared with two of her hampers, and a few minutes later she brought the others. Then she withdrew, followed by her mistress, and Madge set herself to perform the toilet of her two charges. Who ungratefully clamored for bed. I don't want any supper," said Joey, with a wistful look at the big downy pillows. Oh, Madge, can't I just go straight to bed? But this Madge would not allow. She insisted on Joey's changing, made her wash herself thoroughly, and then brushed the short black hair vigorously before she turned her attention to her own toilet, leaving Joe. To see to Robin, Frida came presently, looking very fresh, in a pretty dress and her dark blue frock, with white pinafore. Her hair hung loosely in her waist, and excitement had deepened the roses in her cheeks. She led them into the spiesel, a low, wide room, with flowering plants in one window and canaries' cages, at present covered with dark cloths. In the other, the long table had the usual blue and white checkered cloth, and the china was white with a cheerful blue and yellow pattern on it. A big bookcase full of books stood behind the door, and there was a chair set round the table. As the girls came in, Gertlieb was just placing a big dish of delicious soup before her mistress, who sat at the table. A flat dish piled with crisp little brown sausages stood before Gottfried, and Bernhilda was dispensing the rolls. Come," said Frau Minch cheerfully. "Sit down, everyone. Frida, mein Kindchen, ask der Lieb Gott for a blessing on our food." Frida murmured the pretty Troilene grace, and the plates of soup was passed to Gottfried. Who ladled a sausage into each before he sent it on to the destination? It was very good, and so were the great Van Karchin with jam, which formed the next course. But Joey and Robin were almost too tired to eat. Frau Menchen smiled as she saw the baby's head nodding lower and lower. She is too sleepy for supper, she said. Fräulein, if you will permit, Bernhilda shall take her away and put her to bed. Bernhilda rose at once and led the sleepy Robin off to bed. Whether both Joe and Frida were dismissed twenty minutes later. It is early yet, Frau Minch, apologetically to Madge said, but I am old-fashioned and I like early hours for young people. 
Also, little Joe is very weary and should soon be asleep. She does not look too strong, Fräulein, said Gottfried gravely. She is not strong, replied Madge quietly. She is much better, however, and Dr. Ickert thinks she will outgrow her delicacy, undoubtedly replied her hostess as she led them into the salon. Another long room and rather narrow, but bright and cheerful, and its pretty mats and blue covered furniture. There was the inevitable sofa with its little table before it, but there was no book arranged at mathematical angles, as Madge had expected. Instead, there was a bowl of Roman hyacinths. More flowering plants were in a long wicker stand near one of the windows, a grand piano was at the other. And at the end of the room, in an alcove, stood a harp, a beautifully carved brotkashkin, or bridal chest, was placed near, and on it was Bernhilda's violin. The trollies are an artistic people, and the few pictures on the walls were reproductions of famous paintings, while the ornaments were mainly carved wooden ones, with few dainty Dresden figures. My mother-in-law, who lives with us, thinks our salon very modern, said Frau Minch, as she waved Madge to a comfortable chair. She's very old, you see, and she does not like modern ways. She lives in her own room most of the time, but on festival days she joins us, and then she amuses herself by criticizing everything that is not exactly as it was when she was a bride. Well, she is nearly ninety-five now. My husband is her youngest son, and she has not much pleasure in life. So, if she enjoys it, why should we mind? She cannot be with us much longer. Now, mein Liebling, it is easy to see that you are tired, so Bernhilde shall play for us a little, and then you shall go to bed. Gottfried, will you and Bernhilda make music for us? Gottfried and Bernhilda promptly played several things together. He accompanied her violin, and then, at his mother's request, he sang two or three of Schubert's beautiful leaders in a sweet symphonic baritone. And at nine o'clock, Frau Minch sent her guest off to bed. It is of no use to wait for my husband, she said. He is always late as Christmas at Christmas time. There is much to see tomorrow, so I will go to see the Grossmutter as all she needs, and then Bernhilda and I too will go to our beds. She walked with Madge to the bedroom door and then paused. My child, she said gently, while you stay with us, may we not treat you as one of ourselves, we older people. Use your pretty Christian name? Oh, please do, replied Madge. I should like that. Thank you. That will be more comfortable, I think. Now, my Liebling, good night, and the angels guard you. How kind, thought Madge, as she undressed as quietly as possible for fear of waking the two children who were sleeping soundly. When she was ready for bed, she pushed Joey over to the other side and then slipped it. In beside her with a sigh of pure pleasure for the relief of stretching her tired body out. We shall have a splendid Christmas, she thought drowsily. Three minutes later, Frau Minch, peeping in, 
found all her visitors slumbering so profoundly that they were never even stirred as she closed the door behind her. 